Less than a week to go before the election, what do you do when you're bombarded with misinformation or misleading claims or outright lies or weird conspiracy theories you don't understand? I'm Dave Helling. Today on Deep Background, we'll take a deep dive into those issues and offer ways you can defend yourself against misinformation in the voting booth. Well, greetings. You're on Deep Background for October 28th, 2020, less than a week to go before the big election. And uh, I think we'll all be thankful when it gets here and we know what the voters are going to say. I will be anyway. Today, we're going to talk about ways that voters can make the best possible choices at the polls. And we have two great guests to discuss that issue. Of course, Derek Donovan, my uh, colleague on the editorial board, as always, is co-host of the show. Great to have him with us. And then Colleen Nelson, McCain Nelson, uh, my boss, the editor of the editorial page for the Kansas City Star and the head of uh, opinion for McClatchy and Melinda Hindenberger, also my colleague on the editorial board. It's an all editorial board podcast today, which, you know, mm-hmm. obviously we're going to submit this for awards and other things. Just great family. Have, yeah, great to have everybody with us. And, Thank and you. what we're going to talk about is misinformation and how people in, in uh, how voters uh, are bombarded these days by messages that, uh, that can mislead, uh, distort, outright lie. I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's a huge concern. And Colleen, let me start with you. We've all uh, covered politics for decades. And, and the idea that, that misinformation is new is probably wrong. I mean, politicians have been lying as long as there have been politicians. But it seems worse now than ever. Is that right? And if so, why? That seems right. And it it does feel like a deluge of misinformation and disinformation and uh, misleading claims. And and you're completely right. I mean, it's it's not an entirely new phenomenon. Obviously, we've seen forever, for decades, uh, political ads that are misleading or that exaggerate or that just aren't quite right. Um, But increasingly, it feels like the guardrails are gone. And, And some of that is because of the politicians themselves and the information that they're putting out there and in some cases, the lies that they're putting out there. But a lot of it is just because of social media and and the way the internet works. And there are just no barriers to entry in terms of circulating bad information. And so, you know, Facebook is a particularly egregious offender. You see so much bad information, false information circulating on Facebook. That And, and there have been studies done where in some cases, um, information that is false uh, circulates faster and further than, um, than actual journalism. And uh, part of that is because um, disinformation is um, often uh, more shocking, more, <laughs> more, um, and and it sounds really interesting. It sounds too good to be true, and then uh, often it is simply not true. And uh, and in too many cases, more eyeballs end up on things that just are flat out false compared to um, credible journalism. Yeah, Melinda, you think this is a social media phenomenon uh, alone, or does has social media just exacerbated what's always been a problem? I think social media has exacerbated the problem, but voters have changed. I remember when telling a lie was a bad thing. When if you lied to voters and that lie was exposed, there would be a price to pay. 
And now voters, uh, often readers who are told this is misinformation, this is even disinformation, which means trying to, to put out false information, often specifically to get people not to vote, they don't want to read the fact check. They don't want to be told that something they'd really like to believe is true is not true or vice versa. So I think it, it's not that difficult to tell what's true from false, but what is difficult, I think, is getting through to partisans who believe that their preferred version is, um, is the fact of the yeah. matter. We'll, we'll want to get back to some discussion of defense mechanisms in a minute, but Melinda, I'll start with you. The other thing that I think has happened in recent years is campaigns have learned that if you're going to mislead the public, you might as well pile on 40 or 50 misleading comments or suggestions and create such confusion and exhaustion really with the electorate that you can get away with claims that in other circumstances 20 years ago might have been called out. You know, I started doing, looking at ad fact, doing a fact check on local ads back in the late 1980s. And when I started, each ad would have one claim and you could sort of say, well, this is what really happened or this is how the votes went. Now you'll get 30 claims in an ad or a postcard, mm. you know, 40 votes. And, and I do think this is one of the things that Donald Trump has taught the consultant class, if you will, that if you just keep saying things over and over and over, it, it exhausts the public. Do you think that's right? Yes, and even when there's video to the con or audio to the contrary, it doesn't matter. You just keep repeating it. And I think, yes, people are exhausted and they don't have the check that we used to provide, you know, we candidates and office holders used to feel that they had uh, a responsibility to answer our questions, to take hard questions. Now, candidates don't give an interview unless it's to their second cousin or someone they know is on their team. And I think that there's the... Uh, amount of accountability has really suffered. They, as we've seen in this election cycle, they don't do debates in the same way they used to. So right. they, they just put out their own version of reality and they are not called to account. And, and Colleen, part of that is because consultants and again, campaigns and candidates, I think now believe even if you do call them out, it doesn't matter. I'm going to put my ad on a hundred times. You've got one story, and that and there's a uh, you know a theory out there that even fact checks themselves amplify false messages. They don't they don't counter false messages. They actually give more exposure to it. That puts reporters in kind of a pickle, doesn't it? It, it does. And I think we're all wrestling with that in real time. And, you know, newspapers, a lot of newspapers have had fact checkers for years and years. And it used to matter when you got four pin Pinocchios. And, uh, and, you know, there were there were ratings and uh, and a lot of and there were politicians who said things that were untrue or that verged on untrue. And, and when the fact checker gave you four Pinocchios, oftentimes um, there was shame in that. And oftentimes they stopped saying it. And and in present day, um, they just keep repeating it. And they have so many different ways to reach voters now directly um, that they 
feel like they don't necessarily need to respond to our questions or respond to our fact checks. And so they figure that they can just pour enough money in to put their message out. And even if we call them out on saying things that are untrue, they can still flood the airwaves. They have their own Facebook page. They have all these different mechanisms to get to voters directly. And, um, and so they figure they'll just try to drown us out. Right. And the other the other challenge you always get when you're uh, fact checking claims or ads is there there is typically first of all, I've told people this for years. I've uh, maybe two or three ads in my career. Have I ever watched that were completely factual and accurate? I mean, they almost always because they're trying to sell something. I mean, nobody's going to go on and say, you know, some people like our hamburger. Some people don't like our hamburger. But Mm -hmm. but but. so the job of the reporters to say no th- here it is in context here's what the vote meant H- here's what this would have done you know that i think classically there's an ad out about barboye now that she wants to take away uh, you know go have a court take away your guns of course they're referring to the red flag law which we've written about taking guns from people who are a present danger or a presumed danger so that's what fact checks used to do you, you would provide that context but it's also, Melinda, uh, you get the sense that people aren't in this environment interested in context. No, and it's not just a context. Wow, we're way beyond that. They're not interested in whether something is objectively true or false. And I think the difference between ads now and a few years ago is there used to be a kernel of truth normally. Yes, maybe something had been twisted, definitely put in the worst or best possible light, but not uh, just whipped up out of thin air. And you see that now, things that just absolutely never happened that are repeated over and over. Right. So what I've told people, and let's move the conversation forward a little bit, what I've told a lot of folks is, for all the reasons we just talked about, it's more difficult than ever for reporters to provide that fact-checking function. We try to do it, but but it's not getting through quite as much. It's much more uh, complicated. People are flooding the zone with you know words we can't use, even on the podcast. Um, uh, and so that each voter then now, in essence, becomes his or her own fact-checker. You're, you're going to have, if you're confused, if you're not sure how you know what to believe, you've got to have at least some uh, tools in your belt uh, to 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 do your own fact checking. Colleen, that that that's a pretty high bar for a voter. It's a pretty. I mean, we do it. It's hard, and it's hard for a voter too. But it's almost essential for voters now to understand how they can interpret these messages. That's right. And and we are asking a lot of voters and, and news consumers at this point, but there are some simple things that you can do. And, and, you know, the first thing I would urge people to do is to do more than just scroll. And I think, you know, it's so easy for people to just kind of scroll through Facebook or scroll through Twitter and um, and not even go beyond the headline. And you see folks um, putting things out there and you just see the first sentence or two, or you see a headline. And in that context, 
context, um, someone sitting in their basement um, and just spouting off the top of their head how much they hate Donald Trump or hate Joe Biden gets the same level of, gets the same weight and the, the same context that, you know, something from uh, ABC or the New York Times or the Kansas City Star or, or the Atlantic gets. Um, and so it's really important to go beyond the headline or go beyond the 140 character tweet and, um, and actually look at what's being reported and where it's coming from. Um, because if you, if you're just, a lot of people joke about doom scrolling. If you're just kind of doom scrolling through Twitter or Facebook and, and just seeing, you know, the, the first few words of, of something or a headline, um, you have no idea if this person has any idea what they're talking about, whether it's actually a journalist or whether it's just an angry person locked in their house, you know, shouting into the wind. Right, right. Melinda, what I've told people a lot too is one of the first steps you can take is if you hear a claim that just seems, you know, use your common sense. If you hear something that seems so outlandish that it's hard to believe that it's true, it probably isn't true. If you see an ad where a candidate says, my opponent wants to seize all your guns, you know, that, that just isn't likely. <laughs> I mean, there may be one or two candidates, but it isn't likely that a candidate wants to take all your guns or, you know, uh, across a whole range of issues. So common sense plays a role here too, right? I think that all you really need to figure out what's true and false is the desire to know what's true and false. I really disagree a little bit with what you said earlier. I don't think the bar is so high and I think we are still doing the fact checks. All you have to do is read them and read them w with a, a mind that's open to your side being wrong sometimes and vice versa. Yeah. So, we're, we're, yes, we're, all you really have to do is I find that people are so dug in that they don't even want to get past the headline that they prefer. Yeah. They don't want to click on information that they don't like. And I hear that from readers frequently saying, I want the conservative viewpoint and pasta. Yeah, I think uh, I, you know, I, we are still doing fact checks, but only on the highest races, the Senate races, federal races, governor's races. I think the bigger concern, and this was a, true for me 25 years ago when I was doing Truth Watch, is the, some of the most scurrilous stuff comes in postcards. It's not on TV uh, and now by social media by extension, but certainly on postcards for state races, local races. Th there's no way journalists, you, you could have 10,000 journalists, you don't have time to pursue every claim uh, in, in those uh, places. And so, Colleen, you do have to have some, some self-defense mechanism that's self-executing in a way. Right. I mean, we're, we're providing as much information as, as we can at the star. And, you know, we're digging into every race we possibly can get to. And uh, we're doing endorsements on the editorial board. We're interviewing candidates um, and providing as much context as possible. We also have a voter guide where you can hear from the candidates themselves and, and get information about the candidates. And, and we provide information about every single race. 
Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, voters need to need to be skeptical and um, and they need to seek out information themselves. And uh, it's it's really easy to be passive and uh, and and you know just kind of rely on your confirmation bias. And if it sounds good and it sounds like something you want to agree with, well, then it, it must be true. Um, but we really need people to be proactive voters. And and you know the farther down further down the ballot you get, uh, the more you need to be proactive in, in terms of of seeking out some credible information and, um, and, and not just uh, putting a check next to someone because they have an R next to their name or because they have a D next to their name. All right, great. Uh, before we take a break, Colleen, talk a little bit about the panel discussion that we're sponsoring, which I think is Thursday of this week, who's on the guest list and uh, what, uh, what you'll be talking about. Sure. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it and I'll have uh, Melinda chime in as well because she's uh, going to be our moderator. But yes, we're having uh, a, a conversation, a digital conversation at 1230 on Thursday. It will be streamed live on the STARS website and, and also on the STARS Facebook page and, and YouTube channel. And it's going to be focused on this very topic. Called, it's called Factor Fiction. And we'll be talking about how you can spot election disinformation. Uh, Melinda will be uh, leading that conversation and, and she's put together a fantastic panel. So Melinda, why don't you tell us a little bit about your guests? Yes, I'm really thrilled with the guests we were able to get for this panel. Uh, we'll be joined by Glenn Kessler, who is maybe the original fact checker. He's been running the fact checker for the Washington Post since 2011, and I'm sure it has changed a lot in that time, uh, by Pat Gaston, who is a uh, professor of journalism at KU. Kathy Kiley uh, teaches journalism at the University of Missouri. Jason Kander, we all know, uh, who started Let America Vote. And two folks from the Brennan Center, Ian Vandewalker, who concentrates on digital disinformation, and Spencer Boyer, who knows a lot about foreign interference and disinformation in our elections. So, so it'll so be a how, really so, good discussion. So people who want to watch or be a part of it, how do they do that? Do we know, Melinda? Uh, just click there. It should be all over our site and will be, uh, I'm sure, at the top of the site. On You can also sign up earlier, uh, RSVP to the event uh, yeah. from KansasCity.com. And I'll put a link. Colleen Wright or Derek Wright? Yeah, and I'll put, I'll put a link in the story for, uh, file with this podcast that you can RSVP. It's an event price. All right, great. Let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk a little bit more about misinformation in politics and ways that you can uh, make the best vote you possibly can. You're on Deep Background. Hey there, this is Derek Donovan of the Kansas City Star Editorial Board, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at the Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com slash background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a deep background listener. By subscribing at that URL, you will get three months of unlimited digital access to the star for $1.99 total. That's right. You get access to kansascity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, our mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. That's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you will be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. 
So go grab your computer or mobile device and head to kansascity.com slash background. And hey, thanks for listening. Back now on Deep Background with uh, Derek Donovan, my co-host, and it's an all-editorial board today. Melinda Hannenberger, my friend and colleague on the board, and my editor and friend, uh, Colleen McCain-Nelson, joining us to talk about misinformation in politics. You know, guys, we've uh, we talked a little bit about what you might call mainstream misinformation, uh, misleading claims, or, or just outright fiction in political ads. But there's another category we have to think about a little bit, too, and Colleen, I'll go to you first, and that's just the extraordinary conspiracy, QAnon, uh, you know, just just absurd uh, information that's broadly political uh, that circulates wildly on the Internet, right? I mean, what the, so that's even, uh, you know, I think all of us have a tendency to discount that because it's just so... Uh, so outside the mainstream, but it has enormous impact, doesn't it? It does, and I think we should all be alarmed um, by how widely it's circulated and how much traction it's getting. And there was a study that came out last week about QAnon uh, that found that about a third of people give some credibility to the QAnon and think that there's some truth to the QAnon conspiracy theories, which, you know, focus on um, pedophiles and sex trafficking and, um, and, you know, aimed at the, at the Democrats. But um, it, it's a, a wild consp- set of conspiracy theories. And to think that a third of survey respondents said that they think there's some truth to this. And, and I think 10% of people said they, they absolutely believe this. And um, that should unsettle us all. And, and, and so, you know, there, there's, there are categories of, this is in a completely different category from, you know, a misleading political ad or, you know, someone stretching the truth. Um, this is just completely false. And, um, and we actually have candidates running for office who in, in across the country who have given some credibility to this, who have actually elevated QAnon conspiracy theories, and um, and so that that's a concern. And um, and if and if we can't disprove something like that that has no germ of truth whatsoever, um, I'm I'm not sure where you go from there. Right, and Melinda, that's the point, isn't it? That we could write and have written, and everyone could write that this is. You know, QAnon is an example. There are other examples, but let's, you know, uh, Alex Jones, some other people about Sandy Hook. I mean, we, so you can write and write it right and that this is absolutely false and crazy. It doesn't matter to the people who believe in it. That, that's what's no. terrifying. No, that is absolutely what is terrifying. Um, and, you know, this QAnon thing started four years ago as an absolutely crazy uh conspiracy theory that in the basement of this pizzeria where my son used to go to play pool, they were holding all these victims of child trafficking who were, had been enchained by Hillary Clinton. Now, if you think about that for even a second, you, like, you would say, who could possibly believe such a thing? Yet one poor guy, I think he was coming from one of the Carolinas, drove to D.C. with his gun to liberate these imaginary children and with all the best intentions. He thought this was really a terrible situation and he was the one to, to come in and save the kids. 
And then today, when you have a third of respondents to this study Colleen mentioned, saying that they believe it's at least probably true that high-profile Democrats, figures in media, and Hollywood are engaged in a vast conspiracy of child trafficking. Now, that, I, I don't think, stands the test of, I have thought about this for five seconds, and yet people say that, which leads me to believe that they want it to be true. And well, to question, as you said, how we could ever break through that. The New York Times had a very interesting story recently on how do you talk to your loved one who believes conspiracy theories? And uh, basically, the bottom line of the story was, you know, tr don't, don't do this in a way that sounds like a personal attack. And it's very difficult, I think, to go after a thought like that without it sounding like a personal attack. Yeah, and, but you've also seen, and Colleen, I'll go to you on this, uh, and, and then Melinda, you, you've also seen some chatter recently that people are afraid that in this current technological context, the idea of the First Amendment and free speech itself may be in trouble. That the idea that we have a marketplace of ideas and that in which the founders believed and that truth would emerge from the clash of ideas made sense a hundred years ago, but in the current environment with so many different channels that, that ideas like QAnon cannot be erased simply by more speech. You know, the classic, you know, if you hear something bad, just talk about it and it'll go away. You know, I'm a First Amendment absolutist, always have been, and that's a terrifying thought. But, but, boy, you can see why that discussion is getting underway. Because it's just not QAnon. It's the whole idea that we can live in an alternate reality that's impervious to criticism or, or, or you know, neutral observation. Colleen? Yeah, I think these are really tough questions, and 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 you're right. I mean, it's it's terrifying to to think about that 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 the the First Amendment uh, might not prevail, or 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 that the truth won't emerge. Um, I think there are so many unanswered questions about social media's role in this, and you know, and, until now, I think even though the First Amendment um, uh, prevailed in the past. Part of it was because there were some guardrails and there were some barriers to circulating information widely. And, um, and now it's completely different, a completely different online landscape. And so, um, and you see what happens when Twitter or Facebook um, occasionally try to do the right thing. And, you know, they haven't done a lot of that. They haven't taken a lot of aggressive steps to try to rein in the spread of misinformation. But occasionally when they actually pull down a tweet or pull down a Facebook post because it's incendiary and, and untrue, um, then, then, then folks who believe in that conspiracy theory claim that they're being censored and, you know, and, and claim, you know, the first amendment is, is being in, impinged upon here. And so um, I think there are a lot of tough questions for social media platforms to, to answer here, because of course the first amendment is essential. Um, but what, what can we do to stop the spread of, of conspiracy theories and dangerous false information? Right. And, 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 
And uh, go ahead, Derek. I'm sorry. And let's just be clear here. This is the place where it's so different from the media landscape of the past. You know, in the Kansas City Star, we will publish all sorts of points of view. Uh, you know, I put together the op-ed pages. Uh, today I had, uh, you know, very strong pro-Trump uh, piece from Mark Thiessen, very strong anti-Trump piece um, from Robert Reich about the Supreme Court. That's great. But they're, they're working in the reality world. They're working where facts mean things. Facebook and Google and Twitter have taken so many eyeballs and they will allow people to post things that are saying Hillary Clinton is letting uh, kids blood be harvested to get a chemical. I mean, they're letting people publish these things unfettered. Those would never, ever come to the public's eyeballs in a place like the star in a place like the New York times, even in a place like national review, in a place that's very strongly conservative. They don't traffic in that kind of stuff. Right. And that is just the reality of, of how people are getting quote unquote news these days. And, well, it's and, and not only that, but, uh, but when a Twitter or a Facebook or a star decides not to republish these conspiracy theories, suddenly we're part of the conspiracy. It isn't just that it was the wrong decision, but this absolutely. proves the conspiracy exists, you know, that all the, the you know, that the media companies are part of the cabal, which becomes then a self reinforcing mechanism and melinda that just gosh how do you how do you break that i don't know i don't well know. one complicating factor we have not mentioned is that you have the president of the united states retweeting QAnon and other conspiracy theories and you know to say that gives it oxygen is a real understatement so it's also a problem that people don't know what censorship is Censorship is when the government doesn't allow free speech or impinges on free speech. It's not when a media organization or a social media platform takes down something that's incendiary or false. Right. And, and, and I've argued, as you guys know, on the editorial board that they have every right to do so. But, but the head of Facebook, the head, I think the head of Twitter were hauled before Congress today to try and justify uh, their decisions, their editorial decisions on some of this stuff. And it is not uh, a big leap from QAnon to the New York Post story about Hunter Biden and trying to figure out where that, where that fulcrum is. Colleen, uh, isn't that the central challenge of the next 10 years in this space, which is to understand social media and its impact on this, this disassociation in many ways with governmental and political reality for people. I mean, when I was in Nebraska in the 1970s, you, you, people would pass out flyers about the Trilateral Commission and, you know, the Jewish cabal. And I mean, that, that's always been around. The, the John Birch Society in the 60s, you know, the paranoid style of American politics, which is a great seminal work from the 60s about this phenomenon. The difference now is it's it can be amplified almost, you know, infinitely. And that's what the concern is. You're right. And, and the central challenge going forward is, is, a, is a steep one. And, uh, and I think, you know, after the 2016 election, so many people were shocked to learn how much misinformation had circulated. You know, obviously we had the WikiLeaks um, and, and, you know, Russian interference and, and all of the stuff. And, and, you know, 2016 was really a, a huge leap forward in terms of, you know, misinformation encroaching on our elections. And I think after 2016, everyone said, gosh, 
what are we going to do to make sure that never happens again? You know, we didn't know that this was happening in real time in 2016, and we didn't know how pervasive this was, and we've got to get this um, under control by 2020. Of course, this won't happen again. And here we are four years later, and we've really made no progress, and in many ways, um, it's gotten worse. And, um, and so I think that is discouraging, and we really can't find ourselves again in 2024 saying, gosh, it's been another four years, and we really haven't made any progress, and misinformation is still dominating um, our, our political discourse. And and so um, this this is a serious challenge, and our country needs to collectively take it seriously. Well, we'll let that be the last word. Melinda has to skedaddle to rehearse for this mm-hmm. panel, and we've got other things to do and write about. But a great discussion, and so important, and so intricate. Uh, I, I just really appreciate this uh, talk. And let's do this again. I mean, after the election, maybe there's a chance for us to sort of suggest that lessons have been learned or not learned and what we need to think about four years from now. Colleen McCain-Nelson right. of The Star and of McClatchy, thank you so much. Melinda Hennenberger of The Star's editorial board, again, thanks for your contribution. Good luck on Thursday. We thank invite you. everyone to pay attention to this panel. And uh, Glenn Kessler is just brilliant about what he does. He'll have insights as well as the other folks as well. Derek Donovan, my colleague, again, thanks, Derek, for being with us. I'm Dave Helling with The Star's editorial board, and you have been on Deep Background. Yeah.